I had to sometimes not take what the first reaction was at face value. So somebody's terrible in training, doesn't look like they care, their fitness levels are down. It's on a Monday after I've given them the weekend off. My assumption that they've, you know, been partying all weekend, think they're safe in the team and taking their foot off the gas. I don't make an initial decision about that. I speak to people, I listen to them, I find out that there's been no food in the village all weekend that they haven't actually had a proper meal for two days and they're tired and they've got no they've got nothing to give and and so you know if I had suddenly at face value gone you're not trying this 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 blah 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 lost that player but actually by understanding him and where he's come from and what his background is then you can just get that trust at a deeper stronger bond Well, hello, folks, and welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. This is episode 98, and we're looking forward to at least two more after this one. So if you haven't been here before, then um, please do take a chance to have a look through the back catalogue of amazing episodes and guests that we've we've had on the podcast. If you're returning, then we've got another great episode ahead of you. My name is Steve Ingham and I'm a performance scientist by trade and uh, the purpose of this podcast has been over the last four years to try and speak to and capture some of the insights from high performance, whether it's the people that are stood on the sidelines, whether it's the people that are out on the pitch or on the track or in the pool, or those people who are back at base who are trying to find out different ways in which you can approach performance. And what we've really noticed over the last four years is the variety in ways in which people approach performance. It's not just a a one size fits all. There's no one route map to the top of the summit. And whether you're looking to make a change, whether you're looking to start, whether you're looking to recover from a previous effort, then you'll probably find a conversation in the back catalogue that can inspire you and can encourage you to take meaningful and sustainable steps forward. This week's guest is Ben Ryan. Now, Ben coached the England Rugby Sevens team between 2007 and 2013. And then Ben took this amazing leap of faith in taking up the head coach role with the Fijian Sevens team. And he did so in a way that is truly inspirational, leading them to Olympic gold at the Rio Olympics in 2016. In recognition of these achievements, the IOC named the Fijian Sevens rugby team as the best male team performance at the 2016 Games. And Ben was awarded the Companion of Order of Fiji, that's the highest order attainable on the islands. Ben's book documenting his journey, Sevens Heaven, won the Telegraph Sports Book of the Year. It's a really amazing, inspirational and, and just uplifting read. Ben is a thoughtful, really observant coach. He has a calm level of consideration for the environment that he is in and the people he interacts with, whether they are a prop or a prime minister, which all manifests itself in a really unambiguous focus on how he works, how he leads and how he creates the conditions for others to succeed. This approach makes him one of the most compelling coaches to listen to. So, Ben, start me off with 
how would you describe your athletic career? Oof. <laughs> Peaking probably at about nine or ten years old, I think. <laughs> um, mini rugby, I, you know, for Richmond was, uh, yeah, I was I was carefree and threw myself about and loved it. And, um, and I think as I got older, it, I probably had more distractions that I wasn't very good at dealing with. Probably physically, I was a late... Um, bloomer as well um, and yeah so I, I guess my early teenage years were probably at the peak I mean I, I, I played professionally um, in the in the top division in England um, in rugby and and loved all the various memories I had there but had quite a lot of injuries having had a completely injury-free career I suddenly got them like London buses and that led me into my into my teaching and coaching career really a little bit earlier than I probably hoped but um, no, I had fun, and yeah, I don't know if I reached my my potential. Probably not, but I got no regrets about it all. Mm. I'm curious as much as anything, based on the relationship between, I suppose, this perhaps cliched view of playing level and experience. That you know, you've won the top prizes, and that's a prerequisite, or it's a predictor, an essential requirement for coaching at the at the top level. And I'm just curious to sort of for you to to replay your thoughts and about being a player and what might have equipped you well for being a coach. It would it would definitely be those you know in, uh, snakes and ladder moments really you know so that those times where you have an injury where you're coached badly where where you're you're selected or dropped. Um, where you make some bad decisions as, as an athlete and you wish there was a better coach around to help guide you better or you had some mentors. Um, and I think, you know, I guess my overriding, you know, my, my, my dad was, was, was around a lot when I was a young, uh, a youngster and he didn't really give me much advice. He was there, but he didn't give me much advice. And I think that was just his style, but I do kind of wish that I had some good mentors when I was younger that would have guided me a little bit better to try to steer me in the right direction to be, to be my best version. So all those, those things helped guide me, I think in my early days as a coach, because it wasn't certainly wasn't all plain sailing as an athlete. And, and you know, you, you remember those moments, you don't want to repeat them as a teacher or as a coach and you put kind of front and center, the, the person and creating that environment where they, they feel they can really they really be at the best and they know how to get there as well. And why do you think there is this idea, this principle that just kicks around? It's persistent about the fact that if you've got to have played at the very top, won the World Cups, won the World Championships, for you to then coach a team to that level? There's probably a number of different reasons in the UK. I think it's less so, you know, as you know, in the States, it's less so. Plenty of NFL and NBA coaches and high-ranking college coaches that haven't got really any particular playing pedigree, and it's certainly not—it's not a glass ceiling in the US as perhaps it is in the UK. I think we are still in most of our professional sports, particularly in you know the areas I work in, it, it's still relatively new, and so a name, somebody that um, is going to dazzle the board, is going to help the fan base is quite alluring uh, um, in the early stages of professionalism. And I think we're still in that in, in rugby. 
Um, and I and I think perhaps coaching hasn't earned its reputation yet as a career on its own, as a as a separate entity. That it, it is some way kind of attached to your playing career, and it's uh, almost you know like a like a follow on. But we do see if you get get into the weeds, you know, the, some of the very best coaches in the world and in the UK ha- have had a very modest playing careers or athletic careers. And whether that's, you know, a, a Mourinho or a, a Graham Henry with the New Zealand All Blacks or, uh, you know, that there are there are many that that. So I think I think it's changing in the perception and it doesn't mean that. You know, you can, of course, you can be a top end player and be a top end coach, and someone like a Pep Guardiola is is showing that. But you can also be a Jurgen Klopp and and uh, and also achieve great success with a career that that wasn't stellar. So um, it's slowly changing, but um, I think there are a number of of things at play really that just put you behind an established athletic career of somebody. Um, at the start of, of everything. If that makes sense, that kind of makes sense. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm hearing there a curiosity from your own experiences of, of you going through that injury, that experience of thinking, well, you know, it'd be really great if I could have a mentor or somebody who could guide me through this process. So I'm now curious to know whether you can see the qualities and characteristics of other of players that could predict or could create the right conditions for somebody to be able to coach at a high level. The curiosity thing is 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 huge for me. As a young player, even as a as a kid, um, I'd be trying to find different you know, penalty moves as a, as a young rugby player or different training techniques. I remember contacting a sports psychologist when I was about 14 or 15, um, looking at different cycle, stress cycles as a tra- as an athlete when I was at Thames Valley Harriers as a youth running four hurdles and just finding, yeah, d- diff- different, different ways to do things and looking at what was going on. So that curiosity definitely sparked something in me. And I was just, it was quite, a, I was quite attracted a bit like a moth, I guess, to those, what what people were doing, what the future trends were, what was best practice, and that was, you know, probably as a kid, mum and dad would take me to Borough Road um, to the track there, the old track and Borough Road that's I think flats now, and you'd watch Borough Road play, well, sorry, compete against someone like Loughborough, um, and you'd have Zebco running there, and and or Jeff Cape throwing the shot and. You'd be a young kid there, and you know you were. I was amazed how fast they were, and you get to meet your heroes that you see on telly, and it and it and it fostered like a, a curiosity to want to know how they got there, what they did, um, how they warm up, uh, how they train, what they're like, and that then drove me to want to go to Loughborough because Seb Co went to Loughborough, so that was I wanted to go there, even though I didn't run middle distance. It was just the fact that he was he was somebody that I looked up to. And and then you start to yeah I think that 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 does that does help a bit and then quite a few coaches I had along my way my first my best coach was was a PE teacher that I still stay in contact with and what he gave me was just that positivity around everything just you know that he he obviously loved what he did he he really he was full of positivity there was very there was very little negativity and you know you're eight nine ten eleven years old but I remember a lot of what he did then and that also was one of the 
the kind of drivers for me as a coach. You know, you want to stay positive. You want to engage and enthuse and add energy to what you're doing and and and, and think that the people that you're, you're coaching trust you and believe in you and you believe in them, you know. And, and so all of those things, I think, come into some of those coaches. I've, and then I've had coaches that would ignore confrontation, would say one thing to you and then deliver something else. Um, so you, you pick, you plagiarise, don't you, I guess? You plagiarise as a coach when you see other good practices or other things going on in other areas of life that you can airlift into what you're doing. But as an athlete, you also plagiarise the good and the bad that you've encountered on, on your journey from, from you know, a PE teacher from junior school through to a professional coach at international level. I can remember we presented alongside each other. Gosh, it was a while ago now. So I think it was about 2010. Um, we presented at an FA conference, football conference. So for the practitioners and support staff and yeah. so on. Uh, so Ian Beasley, the doc at the time at the FA had invited us along and I was doing something on recovery and you were talking about how you were coaching and supporting the, the England sevens team. And I can remember amongst sort of a sprinkling of the methods, the tactics, the analysis, the conditioning things that you were up to, there was, there was an awful lot of the how and at the time, I had a real sense of you're sort of saying, OK, this is what we do. But actually, what you probably really need to know is the the how. And and so there was a there's mix and this pull from I probably need to be telling you this about some of the, the programming and so on. And then the, actually what really matters is the cultural side. And I remember there was a there was a montage, if I'm not mistaken, it was um, Johnny Cash um what's the song walk the line montage was that right yeah that is right yeah yeah okay i haven't just dreamt it so um so that was all about the power and the drive and the importance of the environment the culture uh, not mm. what you do it's how you do it more than anything is this something that that you've always been trying to develop in the teams that you're working with you've got a much better memory than me. Um, <laughs> well, uh, yes. okay. The next question is about what you can remember about my presentation. <laughs> I, I, you know, uh, and it's not because I've had too many bangs on the head, but, but um, I struggle to remember what, you know, the conversations I had yesterday sometimes. Um, uh, yeah. I, 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 it is, it is front and center for me that how, how you go about doing things because to, to an extent, once, once you get, certainly get to a certain level, um, there's either you either have a very deep knowledge of of the area you're working in or you have the access to have others that do have that knowledge and it's then about application and how you do it and you know that that's the art meet, meet science really on everything we do and I, f I find that very important you know that um, you connect what you're doing the athletes and the staff that work alongside you know why you're doing what you're doing they understand your methodology but they also understand what's what the, what's in it for them and the, for the greater good you know the, the the we not me and so that that's all comes across in how you then deliver and how you create the environment that you want people to thrive in it it, it, it interconnects um and and of course you can have practitioners that are that are very knowledgeable and don't necessarily have that softer touch 
but they can still be part of your group because it's all about having the, you know, that that nice mix and then somebody there to be able to, I'd say in a in a fairly in a David Brandt accent kind of work within the interfunctions to maximize their interfaces. But that's kind of, you know, what a lot of us do. You know, we we jump around between what the sports science department and the and the medical and the coaching and the analysis. You connect them all to make sure everyone's speaking in the same language and, and maximizing the benefits of everyone working together. And then obviously at the center all of, of all of that is the athlete. It's like going back to that question, you know, is it going to make them better? Can we help them more? So you allude there to a spectrum that I, I think about quite a lot where on one end, you've got the high level, logical, mathematical ability. You've got the Einsteins at one end. And at the other end, you've got the emotional intelligence, the EQ, the Yodas of the world who understand how life works, how the, the ways of the force, if you like. And so what I'm interested to, to know from you is to, as a coach is to whether you need the capabilities to be able to work with both those that have got that high level intelligence, but perhaps don't really fit. They don't get the team dynamics. It doesn't come naturally to them. But equally for those people who have got that sort of just that feel for interaction, that nudge and that, that little word in the ear, but perhaps they need to be hardening up some of their observations. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I'm doing Duolingo. I've been doing Duolingo for years, trying to get my French up to a decent level. But in Duolingo, that has many languages available. It doesn't have professional sport yet. And it, it is that translation because it can get lost in translation on how a sports scientist will have a conversation with someone about data and how a coach will talk about a player. And, and you do need to both be able as a as a as a coach or somebody in the organization it might be somebody sitting below the coach that is getting that information and then translating it to the to the head coach that to to make sure that they understand exactly what's what's going on but also interfunction so they're then having those conversations across the function as well i think there's emerging roles there in professional sport for for those type of positions um yeah we do often talk in different languages and Everybody has their niches that they come into initially. And I, I had a great chat with a young sports scientist yesterday, you know, and we were talking about trying to put some interventions in at half time for the football team that he was working for. And because there was a bit of a, a drop off in the in the beginning of the second half and want to see whether it's because there's a physical issue and if there's an intervention. So to do a little bit of temperature checks before at half time and some force plate stuff. But if you haven't connected and told the, the, the athletes, the footballers, why you're doing it, they're going to refuse to do it if you just throw it upon them. And, you know, in his head or, and probably in mine, they he understood straight away why that needed to collect that data. But the athlete didn't. He's got 15 minutes at half time where he's used to doing his things and the way he's doing it. And if there's someone that's coming in and throwing a curveball, if it's not explained or translated in the, in the language that the player understands, then you're not getting by. And so it doesn't matter how good you are at your job. If you don't speak the same language, then um, you're not going to get very far. Certainly one of the tensions that, that I've noticed more recently is as support systems have matured and developed, they've also grown and potentially for some, they've become a bit bloated where the idea of, oh, actually, we're now expanding the, the support 
repertoire of what we're offering and we need another person to do that. Well, we need a deeper specialist to deliver this particular aspect. And there could be a very legitimate business case behind that service provision. But equally, what it means is that there's a there's increase in the noise or the number of voices that a head coach or a performance director has to manage. And, and so I think this is something that we're going to have to work with in performance environments. And so I'm keen to ask you a bit about the resources that you had in the England setup, England Rugby Sevens, and contrast that with what you had in Fiji. Now, obviously, the England setup wasn't the richest, most expansive in the in the UK, but equally, you had to start from scratch with the Fiji team. Yeah, and I think you know my overall philosophy is trying to help people become you know as good as they can be. You know that ultimately, but you have to use the tools available and what and, and what type of athlete and who's in front of you. And so with England, we we didn't have the opportunity to, 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 to select the very best young talent in England. We had to really get amongst it, really, to unearth new talent, to have kind of later bloomers, to have players that weren't necessarily first choices in their clubs. And then we had to try to get the best out of them. And so we, we threw a lot of resource on them to, to help that. And we were the first team in England I think in rugby terms to use GPS back in 2006 um, and we did a project on that you know we wanted to measure like, exactly what they're going through in the sevens game and and that's a good start point to get us curious about some of that data to see where we could get some advantages in how we trained and how we recovered and how we played the game and and all of those things and whether that was you know Scott Draw was doing work with a team. Um, we didn't have that much budget, but I said to Scott, look, try out anything with this prof- bunch of professional athletes that travel around the world that are a great co- cohort for you to try stuff. As long as it doesn't make us stupid and it do- and there's no health and safety issues, we'll go for it. And so he, he would do quite a few projects around all sorts of different things. I remember doing a PhD on the amount of um, heat that you lost after warm-up before you go out onto the field and whether there's a, a moment where actually, you know, if you leave it too long, there's very little point in having done that warm-up. And so that drove quite a lot of, it was actually, I think Bob Slay ended up um, using a lot of the data that he he had practised with us, but we were putting a lot, a lot of resource and ultimately it was trying to get every every bit of talent and and an advantage out of the group we had it did also mean that then there were quite a lot of extra staff that were ancillary so they were in a big organization you'll have you know a head of performance or head of sports science that might not directly be involved with the team but overseas and and if it's if again it, things are lost in translation then those layers become really difficult to navigate and there's a, becomes a lot of noise and you know then stuff that's emerging uh, hot topics at the moment be workload you know and, and and that was already coming into it and there were lots of voices that weren't necessarily there on the turf that were telling us about different workloads and what we should be doing and what we shouldn't be doing and so if you're not careful all that resource can kind of back up the system a little bit and clog it and so when I went to Fiji and, and really that frustrated me a lot near the end that stuff that you wanted to help everyone got but get better was actually slowing us down a little bit and you get to Fiji where there is no money and resources are scant but the talent is high you know it's the national sport these athletes were resilient and robust and 
Um, and it, it was therefore about putting really solid foundations in place and then wrapping the right environment around them to do their thing. And so the communication stuff, the softer skills was far more important because culturally there were things around feedback or lack of feedback and not not having arguments in public and hierarchy from the villages. All of those things were were stuff that we needed to get get over and just basic stuff like intensity of training and getting recovery right and understanding nutrition. Because in third world countries, sugar is the cheapest thing to get hold of and you know, as a result of that, you know, players are having massive spikes in energy and drops. And so it was those sort of things. And then when we did get a little bit of money coming in, because we started some crowdfunding and we did get some funding from other ways, it really hones in, sharpens the question on, you know, is it going to make us better? And how how much is it going to make us better? And if it doesn't, if it doesn't pass that first test, like you can't answer that, is it, you know, that first question, then it's, it's, it's a redundant the rest of the conversation is redundant you you know you don't if someone said like you need to get this person in or you need to have this this bit of new kit if it doesn't pass the first test then it sounds an obvious question but it's got to be the first question for anyone getting a job in your in your organization or any bit of kit or any plan around how you're um creating your program is it going to make us better and if we can't answer that quickly and with clarity then then we, we 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 put a full stop in it and and so therefore anything we used with fiji really had to pass those tests it had to make give us a big bang for our buck it had to be um uh you know we wouldn't have to spend huge amounts of time on it and everyone would understand at both ends from the athlete to the coach what the benefits were of bringing somebody in training this way waking them up in the middle of the night to get over jet lag taking them off sugar um getting them running up sand dunes at six in the morning all of those things um had to be connected and owned by the by by everybody and i assume as you say that you've also got to weigh up the the value add to the players and the athletes and the physicality and the psychology versus perhaps adding an another noise or a noisy person into that environment somebody that has the flexibility and adaptability to shift their thinking to make it fit for the cultural norms and environment you're in yeah and you just you know there's a, a i don't know if it's a, a big light bulb but but it's one that i've thought of before it's like if you were in that room in fiji with me then that's a valuable asset because i'm immediately asking someone that's got that's independent that doesn't have skin in the game as far as the program on on what they think and for me that's valuable so i you know i wish i'd had somebody like you that was there in those early days that would have added even greater value i think around okay this is in this is out this is how we're going to set stuff up and then what do you think and you're looking at it from a different angle and if i'm open enough as a coach then that's only good news for me in the program. And I think going back with the with England, I don't think we had that either. We didn't have somebody from outside the program that could look at that and, you know, with a different set of eyes, perhaps see that noise and help me navigate it because I'm stuck inside inside in that 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 noise. If that makes sense. A good example here is sleep. Actually, I think this is a good parallel where we're actually overcomplicating things could make things worse. And, and saying, well, you want to do this and you want to do that and you want to do the other. The last time I counted up the number of strategies or tweaks or tips and tricks that you could use to enhance your sleep, it was well over 100. It's like 120 different strategies. But if somebody 
goes to bed and they're wired, their mind is racing and they're thinking, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, or I'm concerned about this. They've got that cognitive activity before they sleep. The last thing you want to do is overload that. And yeah, yeah. and so this is a good example as to where you probably need to start with. You start here. This is the one thing that is going to give you the, the greatest return. And once you've bedded that down as a good habit, then we can start adding a little bit more of a layer of sophistication or something extra mm. where complexity is is something that can actually deteriorate performance for an athlete or or even for a coach, I guess. And this is why I find, you know, uh, what, what we do so fascinating because a little bit like um, Colombo, you know, we're, we're looking at the clues and then we're, we're speaking to the key witnesses and people that are, are involved in all of this to try to, find a find a really good solution that that works and um and so those conversations are, are, are gold for me exactly what you said i mean sleep's something that pops up all the time with all the teams and like you say huge spectrum of various opportunities and so for me it'd be like right speak to an expert steve this 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 is actually the type of athletes we have this is where we go this is what we do this is why we, we think we need it and then slowly like it gets some really good um conversation going that will lead us to better habits and some some improvements and and so that's that's the stuff I, lo- I i love all of that i mean that's going back to that quite clunky statement into function to maximize the interfaces but that's kind of where we are with also somebody coming in from outside just to keep us honest and add some value and some knowledge so could you tell me a little bit about what you encountered when you first arrived in in Fiji, what was it like? What was it like on the ground? I had a lack of information when I came onto the island. So, you know, I got 20 minutes to make a decision um, to take the job. Um, and I said yes. And without knowing things like my, who my boss was, how much I was going to get paid, how long my contract's for, what it'd be like to live in Fiji, what resources that I have, who was left in the playing staff. And so when I flew to Fiji, in those first kind of 48, 72 hours, I was a little overwhelmed by both what I would find and what I didn't know. And, and so, you know, I would find out that in the, there was no money. They'd gone bankrupt of the, the, the union and that World Rugby had frozen their funds because they were investigating Fiji at the time for corruption. Um, all the players hadn't been paid, so they'd tried to find jobs and work overseas in different professional rugby clubs. Um, and that my boss was the military dictator, Frank Bynamarama. And Frank's got, um, you know, sec- his two coups he, he had. And his second one was in 2006. And however you get in charge of the, the the country, you're also made chairman and head, well, head president of the Fijian Rugby Union. So he was effectively my boss. And then he ends up putting, a, as line manager, his brother-in-law, in as chairman to to manage me and he had been in prison for manslaughter and uh, uh and so yeah the up managing there which again is a you know a common theme in professional sport the difficulties in understanding about managing was kind of heightened for me you know it was and so I had to get good at that because that twinned with up managing the public because it was a national sport and they demanded excellence and it's front and center of, of the news all the time you know they they needed to be up managed as well um so all of those things at the start as well as you know seeing that the players had i i i'd only 
come on the island for a day and we were having about three days, four days with the team before we flew to our first tournament. And pre-COVID, you know, World Series is set up around 10 tournaments. You go around the world and normally play them in pairs. And at the end of World Series, is champion is crowned. And, and then we had just been voted into the Olympic Games. So we were going to be in that in three years after I, I landed. Um, and I thought, right, do a quick, simple fitness test. Um, and I wish actually Martin Bouchette's test, I had used the 3015 uh, intermittent test because I think that would have been absolutely perfect for for the Fijians. But I just did a yo-yo, a really simple one, and, and I won it and I wasn't fit. And the players had just sat and waited for the new coach to arrive. They hadn't had a attitude like, right, well, I want to get in the team, so I'm going to work so hard. that They just thought, well, this, this new coach, he might be from part of Fiji where you know they're not going to pick me because I'm in the wrong part of Fiji or I play for the wrong team or they they're the army coach and they're going to pick the army player whatever it was and they thought so why why so again lack of connection there between being a professional athlete and working hard they just thought well, just let's wait and see who it is and then we'll just crack on and so they were very very unfit in those opening few weeks and and that was you know one of the big signals for me that we had to change, get them intent, get the levels of intensity. And then I also had to manage the the guys above me constantly. I had to feed them information ahead of time before the press did, tell them the team before it was selected and put lines in the sand straight away when th- those first few weeks they would tell me who was going to play. And I had to make make it very firm that the, the decisions would always be mine. And if, if that was a non-negotiable. And so I had, had those things that I did early and then it's speaking to a, um, a coach early this morning about something that he was going through and it's like and then it's about ga- gathering garnering information a brand new culture new environment new job new players new boss get as much information as you can from as many different sources so then you can make a decision and that decision's pace and risk um, is decided by the amount of information that you get so after that first tournament that we bombed out in the quarterfinals. And um, I, I did that. I had that phase, that moment where I would travel around. I'd meet meet the athletes, the players in their villages at the schools they'd gone to, in the local clubs, and speak to as many people as I can to get as much information about the culture and the environment and then make decisions around that plan. So just to recap then, a couple of quick tips to dealing with an authoritarian dictator, a mogul, or uh, <laughs> some sort of leader of a cabal. I, I'm sure that nobody has got a dictator of a boss, so this won't yeah. be particularly relevant. But you're just saying that actually be really clear right up front about the rules that you're going to be working to be proactive in the communication that you're engaging with and, and immerse yourself in the culture. If there's definitely some massaging of egos. Um, you know, and there's, you know, there were times that we would put some some stories in the press that talked in, you know, glorious fashion about about some of those guys coming to to watch us training and how they inspired the team and, you know, whether they did or they didn't come, that was that was a positive story for them that, you know, that that helped them um, make it easier for me to 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 negotiate and and have them in the in the program and. And, and then also make sure alongside these individuals, they would bring other people into the program that perhaps you didn't want to. So you had to, again, make sure that you had that mantra only involve those that are involved. And 
And so that kept your circle tight. So that was quite important. So if you're having to up manage difficulty, you need good people around you as well that you can trust and that you're aligned in whatever is coming out of your program. The noise, the communication out of the camp um, is the same. So we're not seeing any dysfunction or disunity within our group um, if we're dealing with some difficult characters. So can I ask you about a sausage and an aeroplane? <laughs> it's yeah. the way I like to start sentences. Um, so I remember when you presented at the Supporting Champions Conference in 2019, and so you were describing about how you were trying to create the right culture from within the team. And if I, I seem to remember this correctly, you described the situation at breakfast and and you're in a hotel and people were getting their breakfast and somebody had come back with maybe a couple of too many sausages on their plate. And what you got from the team was a hand signal. It was a hand signal about a plane. So, so the teammate had seen the sausages and for the reason associated, I presume, in terms of the health, nutrition, but also maybe the you know controlling your weight, somebody signaled to that player with the plane going down. Mm. And so that seemed to signal where the plane was going up, we're going in the right direction, the plane going down, we're going in the wrong direction. And I loved that example where you were describing the team managing the norms. Um, Have I got that that right? Let me just just check with you. I've I've remembered it right. You got it absolutely right. Yeah. Cool. Um, so in that sense, we uh, psychological norms driving behaviours, standards of behaviours, and I see it so often where people go, oh, let's do something about a team charter or and they go on of a way day and they come up with some lovely sentences, which often would drive performance, but they don't find a way of managing them. They stick them in a drawer or they print them off and they're on a wall and they don't end up living by those. And what you were describing was not necessarily just you as a leader managing people saying, hang on a minute, hang on a minute, I'm the boss, you should be doing this. What you had described was the team getting the concept and finding a signal, finding a simple way to be able to coach each other and hold each other accountable how did you begin to develop that within the team gosh okay so if you rewind a little bit i mean um there were there were i quickly realized that you know anything i needed to implement um and i think i've got into some bad habits with england where sometimes you just assume athletes know you know why they wake up in the morning and do an osmolarity test or a wellness questionnaire or a wade or caliper or whatever it is they understand exactly why they're doing it, what the benefit is for them and the program, and they just do it. You don't have to explain it. And so when I did my first speed test with Fiji, I just assumed, well, they'd understand why I'm doing it, right? You know, get get a baseline, understand what their speed is, put implement a program, some interventions to help them get faster. And so I, I, I they just thought, you know, I started to do these 40 metres um i didn't have much equipment so it was a plastic bag to a coconut tree for you know roughly 40 meters and my timings on my iphone and they and they jo- they were jogging they were going so slow um and i thought i had had i'd said something to them maybe at breakfast to upset them or just get them against me and i asked our physio why why should uh what should what should i do to what's going on he said just put someone to, behind them to chase them 
And so, all right, so I put someone behind to chase and and they got faster because they want, didn't want to get caught. And we did the same with someone in front with a rugby ball. And it was a moment for me where and I realised that, you know, what I had explained, I hadn't connected. They thought, why is, why is this English ginger guy getting me to run to the plastic bag? It, it's not fun. I'm not getting faster. I'm not scoring any tries. And so that connection m- moment at the start was really important for me that I made sure I'd connected everything. And a lot of it was done through storytelling. And so we would we would wrap around, you know, our, our, we only had one value, uh, which is Vailamani, an old Fijian phrase, which means work together, love each other. And from that spirals, as you know, like a behavior and something you can measure. So um, part of that was wrapping around the story that, you know, dropping in standards that we've all agreed and they understand why they're in place and they own them. Um, it's not normally, it's, it's incremental, it's small things. And so that analogy about a plane losing altitude until it crashes was the sausage that wasn't on its own going to stop us losing a game or dropping a pass. But it did in that queue, it does drop altitude. And once they understand that, then that sausage ends up on the floor and the local dog has it. And the guy that was have, having the sausage has replaced it with something more nutritional. And he's, you know, looked across at the guy that said it to him and his hand is pointing in the opposite direction upwards. And we're getting our altitude back to where we want to get to. And that was, that was, I guess, part of this was my, you know, my end result as a coach that I want to make myself redundant. I want to make sure that the team can operate on the field. It's a rugby is, you know, like any team sport, you, you made decisions on the hoof, many different decisions and uh, over a course of the game of which the coach isn't the one doing any of that. So create an environment where it, it's not just about allowing them the freedom on the field. You have to do it off the field and give them ownership off as well. Um, and and that again goes into the push and the pull because you see it a lot in professional clubs where a lot is given to the athlete. Sometimes it's for good reason. You know, if you've signed a Ukrainian left back that's 34 and he doesn't understand the nuances of paying a community charge in North London, um, and you might have to help him pay his council tax so that he can focus on his football. If it's a 17 year old from North London, then you want to give him the tools so he can do that. And um, and it's the same in in with Fiji that there were there were things that I needed to empower them to, un, to and then there was stuff below the line that I needed to get them above the line to then let them to to empower it. So you're always weighing that up when you're going into program. What stuff as a coach do you need to kind of dictate a little bit more? So it might be intensive training or standards of nutrition or fitness. And you explain it to the players. You understand why you're taking more control over it to a point where they've gone above the line and then it's theirs and then they own it. And so that nutrition was the start was, you know, have a colourful plate and make sure that, you know, you can actually carry your plate from the buffet to the table. It's not too heavy that it stops you doing that to to then them understanding that, getting all of that right, owning it. And then they take over the control of it within the group and to the to, for themselves and so so that was a good story and as a as an example of how you do that and the journey that that you go to, to get yourself to that moment with the sausage in the airplane <laughs> so it sounds like you've brought a lot back in terms of the lessons learned the the realizations that you've discovered in your time in, in fiji and so i've got two 
key questions here for you then. One one is about what have you brought back that is a transferable lesson, one that transfers the most to the environments that you're now consulting with and working with. And the second part of the question is about what the experience taught you about yourself. So that one's coming up, but I, I'd love to hear what you have brought back that you apply most frequently. It reminded me reinforced and gave me better tools to in the future to deal with um getting the best out of people by going back to this curious stuff but um finding their their keys like helping unlock their potential or unlock or or i guess on the opposite to that you know finding that wd-40 to to something that's squeaky and what they do and make it easier by by getting to know the player better getting to know where they come from what their whys are understanding better about how those whys and where they've come from can have a significant effect on what they're doing in the present might be 20 years later um and not and given that given that um real credence as well um and not as a you know like we talked about earlier just a paper exercise at the start of the season that doesn't you don't live with so understanding the people that you work with on a much deeper level and get a lot better because I've got rubbish at it listening I, I you know that that and that proper level of listening where they where you really feel that that other person cares about what about 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 you you really care they feel that you really care about what they're saying and um and you want to help and you're consistent in that and that's a skill that I, I've got to keep working on every day because I, I don't know about you but my you know if someone's talking sometimes I'll suddenly go off on a tangent with one of their ideas or their thoughts. Um, I might try and be engaging, but I'll disappear off. I I will have, I'll interrupt without realising it. I will not have cleared my mind properly before the conversation. So I have other stuff that will be interfering with it. And so I think it's a real, it's a tough skill. And I think, I don't think you're ever as good as you can be. You can always get better at that. And with Fiji, I had to be good at that because they didn't initially talk very much. I had to get the body language right. I had to sometimes not take what the first reaction was at face value. So, you know, somebody doesn't, somebody's terrible in training, doesn't look like they care. Their fitness levels are down. It's on a Monday after I've given them the weekend off. My assumption that they've, you know, been partying all weekend, think they're safe in the team and taking their foot off the gas. I don't make an initial decision about that. I speak to people. I listen to them. I find out that there's been no food in the village all weekend, and that they haven't actually had a proper meal for two days, and they're tired, and they've got no, they've got nothing to give. And and so, it, you know, if I had suddenly at face value gone, you're not trying this, 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 blah, 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 lost that player. But actually, by understanding him and where he's come from and what his background is, then you can just get that trust at a deeper stronger bond so those things i think for, for me about that you know reinforcing that how and the why and then that second question that you asked about me that is my why because again it sounds for people that don't work in professional sport they're like what do you mean you, you, you take for granted you know coaching professional or playing professional sport in front of thousands of people and do you, you know you think it's a bit of a chore but you get into a bit of a a routine where you know the, the hours add up and you're you, you're into triple digit weeks and 
you're tired and the pressure comes on. And if you're not careful, your eye comes off the ball on why you do what you do. And, and for me, it, you know, I became a teacher because I wanted to help people reach their potential. And it's the same as a coach. That's the bottom line. But with England, I remember, you know, stepping out into the field, having not even planned a training session because I was too distracted by art managing or budgets or interdepartmental meetings. And, and with Fiji, they reminded me of my why, you know, because you've only got to go to the village. You see these guys that 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 have very little, that sport can be not just a, a chance for their life to be better, but their family and their village to be better, that they have this talent, that they're just crying out for a chance for it to be shown. And it reminded me of my why. And it's that was the strongest thing for me when I when I came back. That I've got to keep that front and center about everything I do because it's, it's everything that you know that it's my whole purpose and my whole philosophy. Um, and and the bit that we talked about off air that I struggle a little bit with as um, a consultant is belonging. You know, I had a huge tight feeling of belonging with Fiji that I'd never had with a, a team before. Um, you know that I'm at the coach. The, the captain said to me. Um, recently that he felt that, you know, the players, you know, if you are, if I had asked them to rob a bank, they would have done. There was that much trust in, in us. And, and and if they said something that they wanted me to do, I would do it for them as well. And and so that, that belonging is quite strong for me personally. Um, and that and the why, they're, they're the two things I took away is whatever I do, wherever I go, those two things have to be there. Yeah, I love that. And I love the fact that you've amongst understanding and personal awareness, the empathy piece that you've mentioned listening. And I think it's such a good example, particularly listening, about how when you say to somebody, oh, listening skills really important, they go, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, I can do that. As opposed to respecting it as a skill and something you can develop a craft around. In the same way that you might go on a course to to study something, you can study listening skills, you can develop that and it's not easy to do that in terms of summarizing back, checking yourself that you're doing the right things at the right time in order to best allow that person to share what it is that they want to share with you and feel valued in the process. That's a very good way of putting it, like catch yourself. I had, I had, you know, It's what I was trying to describe, not as well as you did. And, and even if I'm really concentrating, yesterday I was speaking to an, another coach and we were having lunch before a game last night and I was really trying to concentrate and there was a lot going on and I hadn't cleared my mind from the previous conversation and I kept having to catch myself and that was a two-minute conversation with somebody that I know I trust and I learn off all the time every day and I was having to do that so I wonder like I'll throw a question back to you do you think then with the the younger generation now and the amount of distraction so a typical sit on the TV, sit and watch TV whilst you're on your phone and you're probably multitasking on your phone with a couple of different social channels going and something else you're doing and then your the TV's on and there's other news stuff in the background that actually honing your being, going back to that a single task to listen well. I wonder whether it's becoming even harder with the younger generation. Well, I think that the younger generation are probably going to struggle with that in terms of listening skill because um, they're they're interested in their phone and snubbing you. We call it fubbing. Right. That's, right. that's phone snubbing and the constant 
ding or the, the the idea that there's an anticipation of somebody replying to your post or or a like and that constant pull is not being trained back to the flow and the focus the deep focus that it might need to do to read something or to revise for an exam so i think that's one level that will need almost redeveloping and, and being aware that that generation might struggle with it at a higher level and then probably you've got that those professionals who by dint of education which which entrains you to tell so what is the answer to this question i tell you the answer and then as they go further through their education knowledge and the display of knowledge becomes increasingly uh, prized and, and assessed at a higher level and and rewarded and so we come out of our higher education telling people what to do you want you you've hired me so i'm going to just distribute my knowledge out into the world and so that is a key mistake because i think that just dishing out knowledge without understanding the context and the need or even the circumstance that somebody's in means that somebody's probably going to have to gather information and intel on on where that person is and so asking questions is probably the only utility of that Uh, and so that's something that i think that professionals need to lean into not necessarily because it's a nice to have but because it's essential gathering of information and intelligence about the person you're working with and then the third layer i think is relates to the leaders so leaders are probably inclined to say well this is the way it worked for me and interrupt and then it's not about you anymore it's about me i've just arrested the yeah, that good. that idea of, of you sharing the information with me but now i've stopped it and now it's all about me and how it used to work long ago i reckon this i reckon that and this happened to me back in the day and that stops people from sharing and feeling valued yeah t- t- totally and when we talked about the the that that kind of lost in translation that happens with you know, educated people in heads of department, and sometimes that's lost. You layer into the then listening and making sure that then you you, you know you understand what's required. It's not a straightforward process, and it does require all of those tools that you just said. Yeah, and so if being immersed in that environment and visiting the towns and and soaking up that that intent in Fiji where this is the national pursuit you know you mean everything to us as the leader of the group and we we're pinning our hopes and our imagination on hopefully you doing well how much are you having to be deliberate now you're not in that environment about reminding yourself of your why all the time you know when I finished in Fiji I came back just for a few weeks and then I went to to live in New York for a few months and um that was a complete polar opposite to 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 to, to being in Fiji and I got a tattoo done there that's on my wrist Vela Mani and it's our one value and I, and I use that as a physical cue for me all the time when there's moments where I'm getting too wrapped up in stuff that really doesn't matter or material stuff or I'm getting a bit too stressed about something that I needed to have dealt with a lot earlier and in a lot better way I'll look at that and it'll, it will be again it'll be a, a moment for me just to physically to just to think hold on a second just step back remind yourself of what you're here for and what's important and then recalibrate and I have to do that all the time um 
yeah, that that, that it's ongoing for me. I, I'm sure there's other people. I've got friends that are very spiritual, very mindful, very zen-like, and I'd love to be like that. And I think I have moments that I'm like that, but it's a work in progress. It'd be a, my whole life. I think it'll be a work in, in progress to try to get to that point where. I can be as mindful as I would like to be. Mm. And do you, do you have a sense of what next for you? If you do have a deep understanding and appreciation of your North Star, do you have a, also a sense of what next? I do a little bit. I'm a, I, I don't know about you, but I actually, I believe in manifestation to a, to a degree where, you know, think about what you want to, what you want or what direction you want to go to at night and when you wake up and, have a have a goal that you set yourself and it's a it's a it's a funny one it's not because I've I've gone off rugby it was hard it's hard to back up what you what the 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 memories and everything that happened in Fiji with another experience in rugby it's it's difficult and I growing up loving football you know I'm a season ticket holder at Brentford we're going through this amazing period where I can't quite believe what's going on watching Liverpool in a proper match, actually, a proper competitive match on Saturday night against Brentford is just crazy. Um, and so I love football and I spent a little bit of time in the last few years. It's been kind of mounting up over the last couple of years where I've loved the challenges working in football because rugby can be quite straightforward, generally all from the same sort of class background. Generally, they all speak English or there's one or two languages. And the money isn't is big, but it's not huge. And you go into football where the money can be huge. They can be up to, you know, 20, easily 20 different countries being represented within the staff and the players. Um, all different, come from all different backgrounds. Immediately, that's a massive challenge for all those things we've talked about. And I and I love that. I think it's just it's just so intriguing, fascinating, unraveling. And so that that kind of role where I'm not a I mean my sports science degree is at undergraduate level and very you know it's, it's not I'm not a I wouldn't consider myself a sports scientist um but performance I think a director of performance type role or whatever you want to call it that interfunction type role um is something that I that I think I can add value for and I'm I'm, I'm that's where I would hope to end up at a club where I can do that I can help departments be at their best, the people within the departments be at their best, and then therefore the athletes, the players and the club. And that's what I find fascinating and engaging at the moment. Oh, no doubt. Anyone who brings you into their environment would benefit. And whether that is the the experiences that you've had or the realisations, but the calm questioning skills that you, you could bring. Um, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much, uh, Ben. I loved the, your presentation at the Support and Champions Conference in 2019. It was a real calm, poignant, but powerful way in which you were able to communicate and inspire others to to take up some of these realisations. So thank you so much for the conversation. No, thank you for the opportunity. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Ben. Follow him on Twitter at Benjamin Ryan. Have a look at his website too, benryan.co.uk. And if you go forward slash podcast, he's got an amazing new podcast out. So take a listen to that. You can follow me on Twitter at Ingham underscore Steve and our team at support underscore champs. 
We're on Instagram and LinkedIn. So have a look there too. We've also got some new YouTube content with some strategies to develop human performance. And the link is in the show notes. So take a look.